Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Elb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you're enjoying this content, you could subscribe to my newsletter, theconsumervc.substack.com, to get each new episode and more consumer news delivered straight to your inbox. My guest today is Rex Woodbury, who is a principal at Index Ventures. Index Ventures is one of the largest and most prestigious VC funds in the world. Some of their investments include Robinhood, Roblox, and Glossier. Rex focuses his time on thinking how people, culture, and technology intersect. He has an amazing weekly newsletter as well called Digital Native, where he shares what he's observing around these pillars. And I certainly highly recommend it. You'll learn on this episode about the metaverse, what it is, and how the creator economy, crypto, NFTs, Web 3.0 all tie into it, as well as different use cases of how people are creating their own digital identities. Without further ado, here's Rex. Thank you so much for joining me today. How are you doing? Thanks for having me, Mike. It's great to be here. I'm, I'm doing well. I've been a fan of the Consumer VC for a long time, so it's great to be on. That's so kind. I've been a huge fan of your newsletter and as well as all the other content that you put out. Really big fan. So this has been um, really excited to finally have you on here. Want to start from the very beginning first. What was your initial attraction to technology and media? Oh man, I've been thinking about this a lot recently because I always, when I give advice to younger people of what they should build a career around, I sort of ask the question of what are you naturally drawn to? When you open the paper, what do you read? You know, when you were younger, what were the things that you were spending time doing? And I was always just really interested in how people kind of interacted with each other and with the world. When I was young, I would go through all these different phases where I memorized, you know, the box office grosses from the weekend and I would kind of prowl like the Amazon bestseller books like list and see which were selling best and and music charts on Billboard. I mean, I was just really interested in how people were consuming content and how content changes the world and people's perceptions. Part of that, I think I've mapped back to my dad. My dad's a very interesting kind of uh, renaissance man, but he had many hobbies when I was young. And one of them was sort of these interests in media where when I was two, he took a sabbatical from work and moved our family to Utah, where he filmed a movie. He produced it and he actually starred in it. And it was about an alien invasion of Earth. It's called Portals. And, you know, in Monument Valley, those sort of um, arches of, of those rock arches, one of those in the movie turned into a portal to another world. And so like an alien came in and kidnapped my dad's son and um, the film was sort of about him trying to get the son back. And my brother played the the boy who was kidnapped. And then I was the infant who was born at the end of so the sort of the happy ending of the movie. And I actually got my own IMDb page from that. Apparently they give those out to, to two-year-olds. But, you know, my film career did not survive. Um, unfortunately, I was not talented enough. Um, but I think that and, and sort of my dad's interest in, in film and media got me excited about that. And then later I kind of realized, you know, as I was coming of age, technology had disrupted so much of how we consume content and interact with each other. And, you know, when I was in high school, it was, um, or in middle school, probably even like Neopets and MySpace and these different ways that I was interacting with people online. Um, And then coming of age on Snapchat and and Instagram and just getting really interested about tech and and the ways that it was breaking down barriers to creation and, and content consumption. 
Yeah, no, thanks for that. That's so cool that you got a uh, IMDb page based off of being in porno. <laughs> I, I peaked early. I peaked at two years old. <laughs> That's yeah. awesome. That's super cool. Um, and I know you you alluded to this about how technology has helped shape culture, right? And also how we communicate with one another. I know I remember you mentioning how coming of age through Facebook and Snap. How do you describe where we are today when it comes to linking these two things, technology and culture? I mean, I think... The last decade has been such an incredible transformation of consumer and tech. And actually, today is, as we record this, is the 15th anniversary of Twitter's public launch. And so I was just reflecting on it this morning. And there's an Ashton Kutcher quote from when he went on Oprah with Ev Williams, one of the founders of, of Twitter, to help Oprah send her first tweet. In a little bit of tech history, he was actually in a race with CNN at the time to be the first account to hit a million followers on Twitter. That same day, he ended up beating uh, CNN to a million and, and Oprah sent her first tweet. And it was kind of this big day for consumer tech and social media. But he had this one line where he said sort of, you know, this is the breakdown of traditional kind of institutions and media. Now everyone has this sort of speaker in their pocket, this um, way to access the world and share information. And I think that has been, you know, of course, it's been transformational. We've all seen that. But the way I think back on it is we've shifted from web one era, which is more around information sharing and information being accessible to everyone. And I often think of, you know, Google as the winner of that era into web two, we're just kind of emerging from which was, you know, Facebook and Snapchat and Uber and Airbnb, and it's these ways of people connecting online. And we're moving into Web3, and people have probably heard the buzzwords like metaverse, but this idea of a new generation of the web in which um, it's more built on economic value, transacting, and ownership of, of assets. And you know, we can go down that rabbit hole, but I think we're on the tail end of Web2 and emerging into this really exciting moment where a lot of the, the power structures of both media, but then also the sort of technology platforms that have gotten really big over the last 10 years are about to change pretty abruptly. How do you describe Web 3.0? And I know you mentioned that it's this era that's built on you know transactions and community, but what exactly do you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, I think of it as Jesse Walden has a great piece about the ownership economy. And it's sort of this idea that so much value that's created on the internet today goes uncaptured. And a lot of that is because the, the sort of infrastructure of the internet and the social web was built for advertisers. And so we're seeing this shift of the creator economy and consumers having more power and so much more of the value that's created will be captured. And a lot of this will probably be crypto native and we can get into that. But it's really this shift toward better capturing value and decentralization as well. This sort of the arc of the internet is this long march to um, removing gatekeepers. And so if you think back to, you know, early on the kind of disruptions of legacy media, whether it's film or, you know, books, you can now publish a book directly online or, you know, what TikTok and YouTube have done to fame. All of this is, you know, removing intermediaries who were sort of the record label executives or film executives in their suits and skyscrapers in LA and New York. And it's giving power to people to control their own discovery and distribution and creation and actually manifest a lot of their own rise. But, you know, what's happened is in doing so, the internet platforms have become the new intermediaries. So Facebook and Google and these other platforms, they monopolize a lot of the value. And, you know, a lot of it's built for advertisers. A lot of it doesn't go to creators. A lot of it doesn't go to users. And so the next generation of platforms will be creator-owned and user-owned and really will be 
about removing those gatekeepers once and for all. No, I mean, those are all really great points. And how do you describe maybe some of the differences between the creator economy that we're experiencing now? I know it's obviously very, um, very kind of buzzwordy hot sector versus maybe like the influence economy that we saw maybe five, seven years ago. I think a lot of it goes back to this shift away from advertising is the only way to monetize. So I always say, you know, I was much more born and came of age in the influencer era of social where, you know, starting in college, I kind of built up this large Instagram presence and was monetizing it through sponsored content. And so that was really the only way back then that you could monetize your audience. Um, It was renting my distribution to brands. So, you know, Nike would contact me and say, you know, could you do a post or a story about this and we'll pay you this flat fee? And you're really renting them real estate on your feed. And it's not as direct and authentic a connection. And there's no real way to capture value directly from your community. And since then, I mean, just in the past few weeks, let alone a few months, we've seen a huge increase in the number of creator tools to to solve monetization. But going back to your question around influencer versus creator, I think part of the shift, a couple things here. One, I like Jack Conti's definition where he basically says he doesn't like, and this is the founder of Patreon, who is one of the sort of original kind of godfathers of of the creator economy. But when you say influencer, it really pulls from creator the one thing that advertisers care about, which is influence. And it makes it much more centric on, you know, what can you do for me as the brand or as the advertiser? And it's less about the creativity and self-expression that people are putting into their content. And so creator, I think, much better captures the act of creating, the act of expressing yourself online. And that term, you know, has certainly been in vogue since YouTube in the early 2010s added its its creator program. Um, but I think it better captures what people are doing online and how they're you know, expressing themselves and earning income by building an audience, um, whether they're teachers or, uh, you know, YouTubers or TikTokers or nurses. I mean, anyone really can be a creator today. Yeah, I mean, I feel like as well from this shift from the influencer economy and um, which I think is a lot more tied to your audience, whereas creator, if it's fair to say, it's much more time to tied to building a community. How do you think about the differences between audience versus community? Since I know a community also seems like kind of a word that's kind of thrown out a lot. But and what are maybe some of maybe unique case studies that you've seen creators do to really help and, and really create a very vibrant community? The first decade of social media was very much around status. And so, you know, this was really built into Instagram's ethos from the beginning. It began as literally a filtered version of reality. And so, you know, you would post your photo and you would filter it to make it look better. And this gave birth to apps like Facetune, where you could make yourself look unrealistically, sort of unattainably good. Um, It gave rise to sort of the Kardashian empire and Kylie Jenner's photos and all of this sort of this environment that was built on aspiration. And now we're seeing this shift to relatability and authenticity. And most of this is coming from younger people, from Gen Zs who grew up with this kind of social age and were exhausted by the facade that you always had to put on. And it's the fact that people just relate to other people better when they're their real selves. And so sometimes I call this the shift of Kylie Jenner to Charlie D'Amelio, where, you know, five years ago, maybe even three years ago, Kylie was the most talked about young person on social media, but she really was about aspiration. Whereas Charlie D'Amelio, the most followed person on TikTok, so followed because she's relatable. She's the suburban Connecticut teenager who 
really could be your friend next door or could be you. And that's been the shift in the internet's ethos. And we're seeing it with new social products like paparazzi or Be Real or Dispo um, that are all reacting to the sort of unrealistic and performative aspects of early social media. So what do you think, um, and I know you brought up Instagram as obviously a legacy social media platform, and it was built around this idea of uh, maybe audience building and maybe status leading. But my question is, which legacy platform maybe overall, maybe are doing a really good job of adjusting and adapting to creators versus platforms that you think might actually have work to do? Yeah, I mean, I think we're seeing this incredible shift right now to enabling creators to earn income in new ways. So all of these big platforms are waking up to the realization that creators are the lifeblood of the internet. You know, they're the ones that create content that keep people around. And all of the internet really is in this war for attention. So time is finite and there's more and more content. There are more and more places you can go online. You know, this harkens back to, to Reed Hastings of Netflix's famous quote of sleep is our competitor. And, you know, now he lists Fortnite and TikTok and Netflix today just launched um, or they hired a, a big gaming executive to get into that space. And so, you know, everyone's in a war for attention and creators, especially if you can have them exclusive to your platform or incentivized to, to create just on your platform, are so key to enabling people to spend time there. And so to answer your question, I think TikTok really pushed it forward here by actually from the beginning being so creator friendly. And they had the benefit of learning from some mistakes of, you know, Vine is perhaps most famous for refusing to pay creators, even when they sort of demanded it and said, you know, you either pay us or we're going to leave. And Vine said, all right. And um, a lot of creators left and Vine shut down. I think TikTok's learned from that. It's learned from the way that Facebook and Instagram were really built for advertisers and not friendly to creators. And they launched the Creator Fund about a year ago in 2020 to help creators earn income on the platform. And that opened the floodgates. And now we've seen you know, Snapchat, Snapchat spending millions with its Spotlight program, we saw Facebook this week announce a billion dollars to invest into creators. And a lot of the platforms are finally waking up to it and, and they're probably caught flat-footed and all playing catch-up to TikTok. No, I mean, those are great points, especially, you know, I really liked what you said about how TikTok really learned from Vine. That Vine wasn't willing to pay creators. And now it seems like you have these creator funds that are kind of popping up in variety. And it, it's also this shift of knowing maybe who your customer is. I think originally your customer for social media it was the advertisers. And now there's a shift in that, oh no, actually our customers are actually the ones that are actually making the content. It's part of this big shift of advertising to commerce. So, you know, so much of, of the web was built on advertising in the web one and two worlds. You know, we... Part of this was because payments were difficult early online or people didn't trust it and, and advertising kept things free. But, you know, really, they're built for advertisers, Facebook and Instagram and Snapchat. And right now, commerce is such a bigger opportunity. Advertising is something like a $700, $800 billion industry. It's about 50% digital, so 50% penetrated. Commerce is $20 trillion, and it's probably only, I think, around 20%. Um, digital. And so there's this huge room to run. And gaming has been probably the fastest mover and earliest mover here of these robust digital economies in Roblox and in Fortnite and in Minecraft in ways for you to have sort of really just digital economies built on micropayments, um, commerce centric. And so we're going to see more and more of that. And you're already seeing it with um, the ways the tools being built into TikTok and YouTube and Instagram to 
let creators directly get payments from from fans to exchange content, um, exchange education, a lot of the sort of OnlyFans-like monetization features that creators have been looking for for years. Those are all great points. I mean, how also, and I know that obviously there's maybe all the underpinnings or features of the metaverse, but if you were to describe the metaverse to someone today, how would you describe it? Yeah, there, Roblox and Matthew Ball, a couple um, great leaders in this space have listed five or six criteria. I'm not going to remember them all, but it's sort of persistent, always on. There's a sense of social presence. Um, you know, there's a ability for a digital economy. You know, the the classic sci-fi examples are Ready Player One. People might have seen the Steven Spielberg film or, or read the book, but it's sort of this combination of this immersive virtual reality-like world in which you have a shared sense of, of social presence. So, you know, unlike on Zoom, I, you know, the person to the tile to my left in the tile to my right, I might not necessarily be to their left or right. I don't have that sense of presence with them. And so this takes it to a new level of even though you and I might be on other sides of the world, we can actually feel like we're in the same room and have a really rich human interaction. And so that's part of it. And then again, going back to the sort of gaming companies, the digital economy piece is really key. And so this idea that you can transact and people can have jobs in the metaverse and, you know, we'll have um, architects of, of, you know, these digital structures and we'll have all sorts of jobs that happen in this economy. And then another piece is, you know, Tim Sweeney of Epic Games, um, which makes Fortnite and the Unreal Engine has been a leader in calling for the metaverse to be decentralized. Um, And so this again goes back to the Ready Player One idea of the whole premise of of the film and the book is this kind of battle for who will own this really um, dominating technology, um, the Oasis, the metaverse. And right now, you know, it's probably an analog to Facebook controlling so much of the time we spend online um, and social media. And so will the metaverse be decentralized? Will you be able to go to different destinations and uh, it won't all be controlled by one company? That's a key question. And, you know, we could go down the crypto rabbit hole, but blockchain is probably an important enabler of that. Yeah, I would love to go down that rabbit hole as well. I mean, what are some of the differences apart from having like a centralized place like Facebook, for example, owning obviously like on the algorithm that is a centralized platform? Like how does a decentralized platform that's on the blockchain how does that affect overall, maybe like the user overall experience within like the metaverse, would you say, than like traditionally when you had in like Web 2.0? Yeah, I think the difference is um, the future of these platforms will be user owned. And so decentralized autonomous organizations, DAOs are becoming more talked about now. And I think they're an interesting concept because the people essentially are the ones in control. And so you can think of it kind of like a democracy where people vote on what they want to see. And instead of Facebook or Instagram making the decisions or, or TikTok saying, you know, this is how creators are going to make money or you know, the features we're launching, the people as a collective are making those decisions. And so it's sort of this ethos of the future of the internet being much more controlled by the people and letting people have the power and being enabled to make decisions. And so that's one key piece of it. I mean, it's, of course, going to be a difficult road to get to this vision just because of how centralized um, technology is today and and how much big tech controls. But I do think the next 10 years will have a seismic shift in where power stands. And we see this in Gen Z's sort of ethos of behavior around anti-institutions or being skeptical of um, how centralized power is held and the new kind of careers that are being forged. So we're beginning to see sort of the early bricks being laid toward this future. 
What are you seeing just as you observe a lot of these behaviors? How are people acting like their virtual selves and compared to how they are in reality? I'd imagine it's somewhat similar just given the Gen Z ethos, but just would kind of like, if you have any like case studies around that, that, that'd be really interesting too. What I think is interesting about the internet is it's always been about self-expression. And so I get to express myself in ways online. And, you know, we can trace this back to me customizing my MySpace page and, you know, picking a song when I was like in sixth or seventh grade um, for my MySpace page and then down the road. Um, and it's actually followed an interesting arc where early on um, the internet, we had usernames and maybe didn't include our real name. And my MySpace didn't really map exactly to my offline persona. And then Facebook kind of standardized it. You know, we used our real name. It professionalized social media in some ways. And I think we're going to see this reversion to new online personas that don't always map to our offline personas. And I think that's a good thing. And what I mean by that is people will be able to assume avatars in games or virtual worlds that more embody how they feel and who they want to be than maybe who they are in an offline world. And I'll give a couple interesting examples of this. One is Code Miko is really interesting. So for those who don't know, Miko is a virtual YouTuber and she basically built a way for herself to, to create this digital character where she has a motion capture suit and uses the Unreal Engine and the suit maps to, to her facial expressions and gestures and she streams live on Twitch as this other character, Miko. And the woman behind the scenes is known as the technician. And it's so interesting because it just captures this way that people express themselves differently and take a, a persona that might be radically different than who they are in the real world. And another example is Grand Theft Auto's NoPixel, which is a, a server in Grand Theft Auto where you actually have to apply to join with sort of this fully realized persona that you design for yourself. And you get interviewed with questions of, you know, who your character will be in this virtual world. And then you enter NoPixel and, you know, I might be a teacher during the day, but I'm a bank robber by night in no pixel, or I'm a venture capitalist by day, and then I'm mayor of the town in no pixel. And it's just this really interesting way for people to express themselves online in new identities. Because so far, the creator economy has really been limited to people who are okay with fame, are okay with being very public with their personality. And that's not everyone. Not everyone feels as comfortable doing that. And, and I think this will open the floodgates to new ways of online expression. Yeah, no, those two examples are really, really interesting. I also wanted to, to kind of explore as well how you think about, in some ways, how the internet's changed content. I was talking with Ali Hamed yesterday about this a little bit, about how since, for example, in music, now songs are shorter, you're kind of optimizing for streams, you want to hit the chorus um, a lot earlier. Are there other examples that you found how the internet's like helped shape how creators are creating content? That's an interesting question. The example that comes to mind, just given the examples you gave and something I wrote about this week is Lil Nas X and uh, how he wrote Old Town Road. And so it's relevant to what you just said, where the way that streaming economics work now um, and the way that songs reach the top of the charts is they get streamed a lot. So creators are paid by the stream. And so he wrote Old Town Road to be very short. Um, the original version was just a minute and 53 seconds. And then to your point, you know, you need to bring the chorus earlier to hook people and get them listening so that on Spotify, you get paid after 30 seconds of the song are streamed. 
So he brought the Old Town Road chorus to drop just 13 seconds in. And he did all these other parts where viral lyrics and, you know, he seeded memes across the internet. And he even, um, for a time, added the viral lyrics to the song's title so people could easily find it. But he's this example of a Gen Z digital native creator who knew exactly what he was doing and was fluent in the internet when he was able to disrupt music. And it is an interesting example because you could argue, you know, at what point does art stop being art and start becoming something manufactured for virality. But I mean, I would counterpoint that with in the past, people have written songs specifically for radio or for different formats. And art is really about what people respond to. And and I think that's part of it. But it is an interesting example of how technology influences art and vice versa. And last thing I'll say on that is actually the reason that songs are three minutes long period is um, that the record players back in the day, that was the exact length of a song that could fit onto to one sort of record. And so it's an interesting example of from the beginning, we think of songs as three or four minutes, and it's because of the limiting technology, you know, 100 years ago. Part of the reason that TikTok has been so successful is the internet has really shattered our attention spans. Short content, you have like eight seconds before someone loses interest. I think that's sort of scientifically proven. And, you know, TikTok's wired for that. It's uh, it's built for that kind of attention span. And so it's an interesting idea of thinking through what are the other ways that these digital lives are changing us and how to build businesses around that. Totally, totally. Now, I know you're an investor at Index. Now, with all this being said, how do you think about within the metaverse, within everything we just discussed, what actually is investable? Where are you spending your time and thinking about what actually is investable? Index is a great history of investing in in the creator space and the consumer space. I mean, you know, Discord and and Roblox and Patreon, a lot of these sort of iconic companies. And I think what's so what they share in common is first, I mean, they're very large horizontal businesses. They're ways that people of all sorts of backgrounds and shapes and sizes and are able to, to interact with technology and with each other in a new way. So I think those horizontal companies are always really interesting. And then, you know, I think to answer your question, there's this whole new economy being built. And so if you think of everything that's emerged for small businesses over the last hundred years and the infrastructure behind that, and then you think of creators or people, individuals being the new small businesses or just the new entrepreneurs, I really do think that whole infrastructure needs to be rebuilt for this new economy. And this goes beyond sort of what a lot of people might think of as just the creator economy. This is really the future of work. It's disaggregated work. It's freelancing, you know, whatever you want to call it. But work is being changed and how we consume content online and interact online is also being reinvented. And so I think to answer your question, any investable um, thing would be what is enabling that seismic shift? And so is it, you know, the new financial infrastructure for this economy? Um, is it the new ways that people are going to interact online um, in the metaverse? I think all of those are interesting. And those are the places that we've been spending time and, and been lucky to partner with some great entrepreneurs. Those are great points in terms of thinking about what are maybe like the picks and shovels or the actual enablers to creators being able to monetize? Since and let's talk about this with Robin Lee at GGV about how creators are are also their their SMBs in a lot of ways, right? They're small businesses that are actually coming online, and also this notion of moving away from monetizing through advertising versus monetizing through commerce. And yeah, I mean, on that point, I mean, I think creator monetization is just interesting, or just monetization. Period. I mean, one of the reasons that I'm so interested in in this broad category is 
my kind of two passions are um, pop culture and media and the things we've talked about there, but then also economic opportunity and mobility and the future of work and how those structures are changing. And that Venn diagram doesn't always intersect, but it really does at this moment in time in this space. And so, you know, you both have new ways that people can earn income online, but also ways that they can change culture online. And I think it goes back to our conversation, but next generation social platforms built with sort of Gen Z in mind or with these new behaviors and approaches to online interaction are really interesting, as well as the new ways that you can earn a living that didn't really exist 10 or even five years ago. Well, how also do you think, since it seems like you know a lot of things are, are verticalizing when it comes to content and creating these very smaller, but but very, very powerful and engaging communities instead of maybe just like a very broad audience per se. What do you think about the future of fame and what actually it means to be famous? Yeah, I mean, I always think about this as the internet is niche. That's sort of the headline. You know, I mean, it really is. Um, we used to have three TV channels that we all watched. And now, you know, there are a million little sub-communities online. And, you know, you mentioned the word community earlier, and, and probably it's it's one of those buzzwords that's going to become overused quickly. But I like it as well because it captures this idea that everyone can find belonging and connection online. And I often point to Discord, which has something like 15 million Discord servers, or Reddit, which has, I think, like 6 million subreddits. You know, hopefully those numbers are in the ballpark. But regardless, you know, we get the idea that there's really a niche for everything and people are able to find belonging in new ways. And part of that, to answer your question, though, is maybe because media is so fragmented and culture is so fragmented now, we won't necessarily have the same celebrities that we had in a previous era. And so we probably will never see a celebrity on the magnitude of Oprah or Marilyn Monroe or these sort of iconic figures that everyone watched on TV or everyone saw in the movie theater because the people that your teenagers watching and, you know, maybe she's telling you about Emma Chamberlain or like Charlie D'Amelio or, you know, some of these creators, Addison Ray, that you may have never heard of, even though they're so enormous for Gen Z. And then at the same time, you know, maybe you're listening to James Taylor and Elton John and this sort of different generation in your own niche, um, or even discovering sort of internet native people more for your demographic. You know, I just think there will be different pockets that are attracted to different creators and, and different communities. And ultimately, I think that's a positive thing, but it certainly means that we probably won't have the same definition of celebrity in the future as we did in the past. And I often think of Andy Warhol's famous uh, Warhol's famous quote, 15 minutes. In the future, everyone will have 15 minutes of fame. And I think maybe that will manifest in some ways in this internet native world. I like that. I like that quote from Andy Warhol. And yeah, it seems very uh, relevant in terms of the actual times that we live in. We talked on this show about Amazon roll-ups and about rolling up these Amazon listings and these small businesses. I know that right now that's also a very, very hot topic. But I'm curious on creators since if creators are also as well like small businesses. Do you think that we're ever going to see a alliance or a partnership or a kind of a roll up of creators all coming together to build something that maybe could become a very, very large business, if that kind of makes sense? Well, I think already, you know, we see creators partner or on their own launch companies. It really does capture this generational change of me going from renting my time to owning equity and being a, a sort of financial stakeholder in my own future. I like to point to um, the example of 
there are these two big TikTokers, Josh Richards and uh, Bryce Hall, who uh, each probably have 20 or 25 million followers. And Red Bull came to them and said, you know, we want to work with you. We want you to be ambassadors for Red Bull. And they said, hmm, you know, why would we sort of rent out our time and our, our distribution to you um, and sort of earn effectively a salary when we could just launch our own competing energy drink? Um, and they launched Ani Energy and, and you know, they own equity in it and it's doing really well and, and maybe we'll be the Red Bull for Gen Z. And so I think that speaks to the different mindset shift. And so I think a lot of creators will launch their own businesses. They might partner with other creators to do that. And then there are going to be all these crypto elements of, of social tokens where you might own a certain creator's token or have a financial stake in them. Or if I really believe in you, if I say, you know, Mike, I really enjoy your podcast and I think you're going places, I can buy some Mike token and you and I can both align incentives and I can help fund your rise, but then also share in the upside from being an evangelist for you. That's also a really good point about the social tokens and as well as how there's very much alignment towards who's purchasing the tokens. I remember also reading how if you also purchase like a token, for example, very, very early, that might be very, very cheap. Then it, then it actually also showed, you know, maybe a sign that, hey, I actually believe in this person from a very, very early age or actually found out about this person. Exactly. And we all have those friends who say, you know, I was the third fan of Billie Eilish. And it's like, okay, well, now you can prove it. You know, with, uh, and I'm, to be clear, I am absolutely that person with Taylor Swift where I tell everyone, you know, I was a big fan of Taylor, you know, way before, you know, Love Story and Fearless. I, you know, back in her sort of country roots. And there's no way for me to prove that. But in the future, you know, just think the upside I would hold if I had owned Taylor Token back in the day or invested in her. And there's this opportunity for a Robin Hood for creators where, you know, if I believe in you, my my incentives should be aligned. And there's no reason that as one of the earlier fans of Taylor Swift, I'm treated the same as the person who discovered her last week. And so I think that whole architecture of fandom and creativity and self-expression and, you know, how you fund your rise is, is not even just a creator, but a worker in general will shift. And a lot of it will be crypto native, but um, there will be just this whole new ownership economy built around economic value being transferred. Yeah, I guess the way to prove that you are a fan of Taylor Swift before everyone else is, and maybe the equivalent to a, a social token is a ticket stub, for example, of you seeing Taylor Swift at like a hundred cap club back in, I don't know, I don't know when she started, like, like 2005, would it be? So yeah, anyway, so that would be maybe like the equivalent to it. And maybe it'll be an NFT in the future of of her first concert or tour or some sort of collectible that mixes utility with it as well of we're going to see NFTs shift from right now the the sort of peak collectability that's been in the zeitgeist to, to utility where maybe because I own that NFT from her first concert, I get access to you know, a monthly FaceTime with her and, you know, early tickets to her next show and backstage passes and, and all sort of perks and stuff built around unlocking access that, you know, we talked earlier about advertising and sort of the influencer era of Instagram being the only way to make money back in the day. But these are ways that you can better separate the different tiers, the different layers of fandom and capture value from each of them in the pyramid. And I think, you know, that will be completely reinvented over the next five or 10 years. Oh, I love that. I love that. So with all this being said, what is one thing that you would change about venture capital? I think the right answer to this question is diversity. I mean, I think um, it's true across venture. It's true across a lot of industries. And I think of diversity broadly too, in that, you know, of course it means race and gender and sexual orientation and, and lots of different forms of diversity, but also um, just starting to look and 
less traditional places as a pipeline for people to be investors. I think the two things that you need for this job are one, you know, the ability to build relationships with people. It's a a job that's really built around relationship building over years. And two, just a lot of curiosity. I think someone who is really curious about the world, about technology, about people, about how things are changing and gets excited to learn and sort of often every day have to learn about something new from an entrepreneur who's much smarter and more well-versed in something. And I think both of those two things are not exclusive to people who are at top startups or in banking or consulting or, or other path. And so I think it's about Part of it is demystifying venture and spreading awareness of what it is so so that people can learn about it and learn if they want to work in the industry. And then also part of it is about giving them the opportunity to do so. Yeah, no, I think that those are excellent points. Demystifying what venture capital is as well as giving opportunity for people that might not have a chance beforehand. I completely agree with you on the diversity front. And it's certainly something we've talked about on this show about how venture capital certainly needs to become more diverse. What's one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally? I would say I love fiction reading. I think my my sort of hot take is that adults don't do enough fiction reading, especially in the business world. And so I think personally, a couple of my favorite books, Americana is one, Lonesome Dove by Larry McMurtry is another. I think the things that those books have in common are these, they're these stories that are novels with great characters who are textured and develop. And the best books give you a window into someone else's life and soul and give you empathy um, and compassion. And so, you know, those are two books that I, that were formative to me in the past few years. So I think that's what I would say personally, definitely a big proponent of fiction reading. Professionally, I mean, Shoe Dog was really pivotal for me. And just that's Phil Knight's book about the founding of Nike. And I just love, I think it's one of the best portraits out there of the scrappiness of entrepreneurship. And building such an iconic brand and company. And it's just incredibly written as well and and reads like a great story. And then I know you only asked about two books, but I'm going to keep going here. I went down a rabbit hole last summer of reading the origin stories of um, a number of different companies. So I read the Everything Store about Amazon, No Filter about Instagram, Hatching Twitter about Twitter. And there are a number of, of others that are great. And I think those are good recommendations just to they're fascinating sort of windows into the early years of, of really world-changing companies, but also just really sort of engaging stories that read like novels. And then the last thing I'll end on is I also often say that the best consumer tech business books are Dune and Ready Player One and Snow Crash and these sort of sci-fi books that you know might not seem like business books per se, but really do teach you about you know what the world might look like in the future. And, and so many times sci-fi has predicted consumer advancements well before, or technology advancements well before they've actually been adopted and created. And so I think um, expanding your mind by reading sci-fi and fiction is a good use of time too. Absolutely. Absolutely. I love, I love that you mentioned all these books. We've had one person mention um, Ready Player One and Everything's Tour. Shoe Dog is the most popular book mentioned on this show. And uh, yeah, but I also agree with you that it's important also to read fiction that sometimes you can get too fixated on reading business books. So um, I really liked your selection. What's one piece of advice that you have for founders? I think I would just say solve a problem that's authentic to you. I really think, you know, and this is something we talk about a lot at Index and, and I've talked about a lot with a lot of entrepreneurs I've worked with, you know, just building something that you've experienced yourself. And so, you know, talking to friends too who are, in search of a company to build versus um, thinking about what are you well-suited to build more than anyone else. Um, and it's often you know, a pain point that you've experienced. 
Jack Conti of Patreon, since we talked about him earlier, is a great example where, you know, he was a musician in a band and, you know, a popular one on YouTube, but realized that monetization was broken. He posted a video that got like a million views or 3 million views and he made like 30 bucks from it. And so that was the inspiration for him to start Patreon as a way for, for artists to better make a living. And I think that's a great example where, you know, in high school or college, maybe people wouldn't have said, Jack's going to start a tech company because he's in a band, but he's been a great leader. And, um, you know, solved a problem that was authentic to him. And so I think, you know, not necessarily going and starting a PowerPoint about different markets and different companies and products to build, but thinking about um, A, what you're passionate about, B, what problems you've experienced um, yourself personally, and then building a company built around those. I love that. And I appreciate you bringing up Jack. That's a reason, obviously, why he started Patreon and as well as he saw a pain point. And it seemed like he didn't come from a, a tech background, but he was very empathetic towards the reason why the model was broken. If you are a creator, whether you're a musician or, or what have you, it was so hard to make money since the internet was based very much on like an advertising-based model. My last question to you is, what's the best piece of advice that you've received? I think I have to say it's from my dad and not just because I feel like I have to say that because he'll probably be the one person listening to to me on this podcast. Um, but no, I mean, I think he always had growing up, he put on our fridge one of those sort of cliche quotes that was like, do what you love um, and you won't work a day in your life or, you know, something like that. Um, and uh, I probably early in my career was more focused on the career that I thought I was supposed to have or the path that people were, were supposed to, to follow coming out of school um, and less focused on things that were just really interesting to me and realizing that you can only become world-class at something if you're actually energized by it and, and really light up when reading about it and writing about it and talking about it. And so I think it goes back to, to that very cliche, um, but, but good advice that my dad had. And uh, a quote that he also often says is, none are so old as those who lose enthusiasm, which is a Thoreau quote. And that's one I think of often of, you know, if you're not enthusiastic about something, um, then it's not a great way to spend your time and, and it's not a fulfilling um, way to build a career. So those are the things that I think of when, uh, when spending time on the things that energize me. I love that. I love that. Rex, this has been so much fun. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me, Mike. It's been great and uh, look forward to the next one. And there you have it. It was such a pleasure chatting with Rex. I highly recommend following him on Twitter at Rex underscore Woodbury. I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter at Mike Gelb, and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone.